welcome to Manufacturing Talk Radio, the only show that takes a look at the obstacles and opportunities open to small to mid-sized enterprises that manufacture here in America. Brought to you by All Metals and Ford Group, with your hosts, Tim Brady and Lee Wallace. Welcome, everyone, to Manufacturing Talk Radio. We're going to be talking with two very informed guests on this uh, hour of the show. Before we get to that, I'd like to go to my co-host, Drew Wise. Drew, how are you doing today? Uh, better and better. Thanks for asking. I've been struggling with the bug. I'm glad to have you back on the show. Another item that uh, has come up, um, 
we ran across a, uh, a story that drove us investing $150 million into
the experience you had moving it to Maryland, that you'll take you a few months to do that. Uh, absolutely. So uh, Marlin Steel was established in 1968. For 30 years, we made commodity bagel baskets. It was a very good business for 30 years. Uh, we were the largest um, manufacturer of bagel baskets in the world. Uh, we did it all out of Brooklyn, New York. Uh, I bought the company in 1998, and I thought for uh, the rest of my career, I would uh, own a company that manufactured bagel baskets, and I thought that was going to be a very good future for me because uh, there was a bagel boom going on in the nation at that time, and many uh, bagel shops were opening, and we were making most of the bagel baskets. Soon after I bought the company, uh, a terrible thing occurred. Uh, China uh, started delivering into uh, America uh, bagel baskets, steel bagel baskets, cheaper than I could buy the steel. It was a horrific experience. Uh, you know, when you do the math, it didn't make financial sense uh, to compete in this environment because literally if we were to match our competitor's price, we would lose money on every one because obviously we had to pay for the chrome, we had to pay for the welders, we had to pay for the rent, we had to pay for the 401k and the health insurance. So we were in a very awkward, bad uh, situation. We were hemorrhaging cash. We had to pivot. We had to transform. Uh, and we had to find an alternative because our current strategy, our current path was going to fail. So we uh, did pivot, and the reason why is because an engineer from Boeing called and asked for a custom-made basket. And uh, we sold him this basket, and we realized that this was our future, focusing in on custom-engineered, highly-engineered uh, material handling baskets. That was going to be our differentiator between us and China. So at this point, we had to pivot, we shifted, uh, and we focused on mechanical engineers, process engineers, and, and uh, in hindsight, it proved to be a very good uh, plan. Uh, we are now eight times bigger than when I bought the company, and uh, we sell to clients like Toyota and Pfizer and Merck and um, Ford, General Motors, etc. So that's uh, critical to our future, and, and ties in directly to this show that we're doing today, because a lot of our uh, ability to adapt was moving from bending every unit by hand, which is the company I bought, and migrating to a system where we're highly automated with lots of robots. And that helped us make better quality parts that helped us ship a lot faster, and uh, that enabled us to be more creative because we could manipulate uh, with our tools uh, the, the products so we could really design and engineer things well for our clients. Uh, if we had not done this robotic investment, this automation, uh, we would be extinct. And uh, that's critical to our path to success. And um, I'm thrilled that you guys are pursuing this important topic because you know, conventional wisdom is wrong. It, it says that, right now, it says that if you bring on a robot, you lose an employee. Well, that's, it's inaccurate. If, if we don't bring on robots, we're going to be extinct. Uh, so uh, in, uh, in our case, um, because we brought on robots, we won more business, so much more business, that we actually have more people working with us. And we actually have everybody's paid more because there's so much more production. So uh, we're, uh, we're, we're very happy you're spotlighting this topic, and uh, we need uh, 
robotics and automation to sweep the American industry so that we could be more competitive and grow and uh, make uh, the middle class strong in America again. Well, we appreciate that, uh, that insight to what took place. Uh, you've made some very interesting points. But we're going to review and probably put out in uh, a couple of other forms this critical information. Very much so, you, Mr. Spencer, welcome back to the show. We've had several times today. Great to be here. It was always fun to see you guys at Bad Tech and the other shows and see the Yellow Jackets and see you having a good time. And it's, it's always a pleasure to join you. It's fun, and we, we do see area at all the industry events uh, very enjoyable. Harry, this uh, experience that Drew had, where his company has now grown eight times what it was, he introduced robotics. Are you seeing that across the spectrum of companies in the U.S. or companies that are reshoring? Well, clearly there's been a, a lot of automation, a lot of robotics, a lot of productivity improvement. But without it, as, as Drew said, the, the companies can't survive because you need it to compete with your other American companies, and, and even more so you need it to compete with the with China and the other low-wage countries. If we're going to pay a higher wage, we have to have you know fewer hours per unit of output or, or you can't afford the equation basically doesn't work. Uh, we've seen we, the reshoring initiative, that's my group, uh, a not-for-profit that provides the data and the tools to help companies decide to reshore and, and make the analysis of what makes sense to bring back. So the reshoring initiative tracks companies that reshore, and in about 25% uh, of the cases of reshoring, the companies attributed their ability to reshore to increased productivity or automation or 3D printing or, or some something that sounds like automation. So, so we know empirically that, that frequently automation is key to the ability to bring the, bring the work back. Terry, uh, uh, in view of what's happening in China, uh, economically, manufacturing-wise, it seems to be that they're, they're hitting some pitfalls uh, uh, and, and, and cracks in the road. Um, is any of that going to affect the manufacturing importation of this into this country? And is there a, a hidden positive where the manufacturers own offshore, particularly China, that they're going to wind up coming back because they don't have the manufacturing uh, capabilities any longer because their company's closing down left and right? The steel companies are closing down. Government owned steel companies are closing down. So, is there a hidden uh, help here for the American manufacturer that they're going to have to come back because they don't have these kinds of uh, successes there any longer? I'd say in the short run, it's the opposite. The, the, the weaker Chinese currency is due to which Drew alluded. Uh, the the fact this, the, the, the fact that they're not growing as fast means there won't be as much pressure on wages. Wages had been going up at 15% per year, expressed in dollars. And, and if, if the manufacturing is growing less rapidly, wages are going to go up less rapidly. So between the currency being down and, and the wages not going up as fast, 
and the companies being hungrier because they're they're not as busy, it, it makes them into a tougher initially into a tougher competitor. Right? However, there are some some secondary considerations. First, China looked like the inevitable winner. You know, companies looked at China and they said, "Wow, they're growing at 12% a year. They're going to be." You know, so much bigger than the U.S. in five, ten years. We have to build a factory there. We have to put our engineering there. We have to put our et cetera there, both to supply the U.S. and to supply China, because the Chinese market would be bigger in almost everything than the U.S. market. So as the as the Chinese market, as as, as you start to see cracks in the wall, then hopefully boards of directors will look at that and say, huh. It's not so clear that we should be there. It's not so clear that we should have assets there. Uh, uh, back, back, uh, maybe three, four years ago, I, I, I was in a debate in the Economist magazine. It was on whether to offshore or not, whether companies should do it. And, and one of the points I made was that the Chinese company owners increasingly are pulling their money out of China and investing it in the U.S., Canada, Switzerland, and places like that. And those companies are connected to the Communist Party. They've got the inside track. They've got the connections. And so my, my advice to American manufacturers was, when in China, do as the Chinese leave. Uh, and uh, because of all of this, we could pay them more, 
and we do. We pay them uh, three, four times more than when I bought the company, and uh, they, they all have health insurance. You know, when I first bought the company, the health insurance plan was to go to the emergency room. So now, you know, everybody has the same health insurance plan I have, and uh, which, is com- which is very common with American manufacturing. Over 95% of American manufacturers have offer health insurance to their employees. But to answer your question, robotics contributed massively to our improved safety record. And uh, this is a big benefit of getting more and more robotics and automation in your cell, in your factories. It obviously contributed to your growth and trust. Harry, uh, how about, uh, you know, I talk about automation. Is it going to increase or decrease the number of jobs in the U.S.? My, my analysis says that in, in manufacturing, clearly will increase jobs. Not, not so clear in services, because in services, there's, 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 manufacturing has already lost a lot to offshore services as a chance of losing more, and, and therefore I think it's more at risk, despite what we do with automation. But in manufacturing, it's clear that, that uh, if we don't automate, we unquestionably lose jobs. Technology flows readily from country to country. In other words, the robots that Drew puts in, his competitor in China can put him in too. And if, if there's a five-to-one wage differential, the, the Chinese guy will still be, uh, uh, you know, lower cost than Drew. So Drew has to, has to stay ahead of the other fella, or without, otherwise he can't pay those higher wages. Um, but so we will either lose many more jobs or our salaries will drastically decline if we don't automate. So, so, so clearly, we, clearly we have to automate. Uh, probably, probably there'll be more jobs than today if we automate sufficiently because we can reduce our trade deficit as we automate. Notice we can treat that $600 billion trade deficit that we had as like a piggy bank. And, and as we automate, as we get more competitive, we bring those jobs back into the U.S., and therefore, we don't lose jobs to automation. China loses jobs to our automation. Yeah, I, I think uh, Harry's very perceptive on this, uh, if I may interject. Um, see, what, what happens is this. It, it, uh, what happens is this, is that we'll get a, an opportunity to quote uh, baskets or wire forms for a, a factory. And if we have automation, we can ship much quicker. We could ship a higher quality part. We could ship a more creatively made part that couldn't really be done consistently by hand, uh, and, and that's and that differentiates us. So, so we're more likely to win the job. So the alternative is we will definitely lose the job, and that job will definitely go to China. So what happens is the big loser in this is the uh, unskilled, un, uh, low-paid employee in China. The, the winner in this is the American employee that now has opportunities because this company could quote the jobs uh, at a tighter mar- at a tighter price. Uh, so, because the alternative was that employee was going to get laid off because the job was going to go to China. So, uh, there's, there's no doubt about it, there's going to be fewer employees. Those employees will be fewer in China, not in America. So, it's a good thing to have fewer employees. We want more employees in America. <laughs> exactly. Uh, Harry, how about the, well, let me go to Drew, Drew, to you first, and I want to go to Harry. Drew, the guys in your shop now who used to be bending the wire by hand 
over metal form are they dead? Are, are they now working with iPads? Right, because that's precisely the difference. So when I first bought the company, we had eight fellows with huge white arms. Why? Well, because they would hand bend 300 hand bends an hour, literally by hand. And they would do it day in, day out, eight hours a day, nonstop. Now, contrast that to today, where we have a fellow here, his name is Nathan, right? And he's making six times more than those guys that when I first bought the company. And Nathan is running five robots. Four of them are 3D robots, and the other ones are robots that also do uh, multi-dimensional bending. And he can run all these robots, and rather than doing 300 bends an hour because he's controlling these five robots, he's doing about 25,000 bends an hour. And all the bends are much higher quality. So, you know, in effect, our direct labor is de minimis. It's, it's, it's uh, tiny, right? Because he's, you know, his labor is divided over 25,000 bends an hour. In the old days, it was, um, you know, a minimum wage person when I first bought the company that was divided over 300 bends an hour. So what's happening is, is that we're making so many more bends that the uh, robots um, make uh, Nathan's cost uh, almost irrelevant. And because of that, we can win more jobs. And because of that, we're, taking, we're eating China's lunch. So this is, this is the key. Uh, and now, mind you, if we didn't have the robots, Nathan wouldn't be productive, and Nathan would be out of work. So that's, that's the, the distinction. So Nathan's doing things much more interesting. He's in a much safer place. He's outside the cage, not inside the cage. And he's doing things that's not boring. And, 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 uh, and then, this, again, this attributes to our strong safety record. Are your uh, robots 24-hour? Uh, they can operate uh, without uh, manual intervention. Yeah, absolutely. And and they run they run what's called lights out, which means you know when when the factory is not open, uh, we still have machines making parts. And when we come in the next day, you know we just move it to the shipping dock. So uh, that's an, again an intrinsic element, um, you know, because of these robots. Uh, we can uh, have jobs like that, and and it, it, even even if the margins are lower on that, it's fine because uh, the cost uh, we, we've really beaten the cost uh, out of it. Right. Well, you got to invest big time in, in high quality robots, and you have to have extraordinary people that can set them up and run them right. Of the people that you had originally, Drew, were you able to transition a lot of them into the the new? Uh, yeah, some of them were very uh, capable, and uh, we still have some of that talent pool. However, some, you know, it, it was too much of a change. Uh, you know, we need people that are very good with reading blueprints, and they have to know what a, uh, um, a radii is. They have to know what a diameter is. They have to know, uh, you know, fractions. They have to know decimals. Uh, they have to be able to convert from metric to uh, imperial. Uh, these are things that are, you know, an eighth grade math student uh, should be capable of uh, handling everything I just listed. Uh, it's jaw-dropper, uh, the percentage of the American workforce that can't handle uh, these uh, mathematical challenges. So, so, we, so we, did lose, we, did lose, we did lose some people because of those elements. You know, so, so now we have people, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, 
looking at the quality, looking at the uh, consistency of the parts. And, and that's a, a bigger role than in the old days of just manual brute force hand bending things. The point that you brought up, Drew, uh, about the education uh, level in this country, so it opens up a whole other door of uh, issues and problems that exist here. And uh, the education level, uh, number one, number two, uh, families need to have their kids go to college and get their degree. Uh, they don't look at manufacturing as a viable um, alternative to Radio. 
We are speaking with uh, Drew Breedblatt, who's the CEO of Steel Fabricator Marlin Steel, and Harry Moser, founder and president of the Restoring Initiative. Harry, I want to talk to you for just a minute. What is happening to manufacturing employment recently? The year 2015 was was light on manufacturing employment increase. I think I think we got 8,000 new jobs in December, and and I don't know. 30,000 over the whole year. So, so for the year as a whole, it was up, but not up very much. But if you take a longer-term perspective, which we've done, we, the manufacturing employment has been dropping for something like 40, 40 years, 30, 40 years precipitously. And the and if you take it with the sharpest part of that, the last 15 years, say starting around the year 2000. And if you take, if you do a regression line, you know, best fit line, if you do a correlation uh, through those years, you find that if the trend were continuing, current manufacturing would be hundreds of thousands of jobs lower than it currently is. So the, the that long-term trend down was due to two things. It was due to productivity improve, improvement, no question, and, but also to offshoring. And so what's happened is that rate of offshoring has dropped so much and the reshoring and foreign direct investment have picked up so much that now we're beating the trend. We're coming we're now hundreds of thousands of jobs higher than we would be if that fifteen year trend had continued. So so I think, you know, as as Drew and I put it, the, the people getting laid off are increasingly somewhere else and not here. And what about the World Economic Forum uh, survey that was released today? What, uh, what's the upshot of that? Yeah, I, I went through that. It's long. If anybody wants to look it up, it's like yeah. 50 or 100 pages. I went through it uh, looking for some good data for this show. And, and they had surveyed 371 companies worldwide that employ about 13 million workers, so a pretty good database. And, and they identified nine disruptive trends including automation, so it was one out of nine, and the, the total impact of those nine productive trends would be to reduce employment entirely, not just in manufacturing, but in, in, entirely uh, by about 1.6% by 2020. And manufacturing was actually getting a, a lower amount of uh, loss of jobs on average than most of the other sectors. And so, and, and automation, one of these nine trends was only six on the trend. So if you if you take if you just tried to take automation out of that, and I couldn't find data on that, it was going to have a, a, a only a very small effect on total manufacturing employment, according to all the smart people at Davos. So between the 2000s to frame, um, we had X number of manufacturing jobs, and then we went into the Great Recession. Are we now at X plus, or are we still X minus where we are? Yeah, we're, we're still we're lower than we were before the Great Recession. We were probably, I can't remember, two million, something like that, lower than we were then. But but again, if you if you drew, if you draw that line, you know that best fit line through the years from 2000 up till 2014. 2015 is 200, 300,000 higher than you would have expected to be. So, so we're we're beating the we're sort of we're beating the uh, the spread, even, even though uh, we're, we're we're still 
in. Um, if, I, if I may jump in, you know, I think it, it, it's important to emphasize it's also, you know, what the job, there's different jobs than there used to be, and they're better jobs. So, like, for example, you know, when, when the, before the car industry, you know, this, uh, um, there's a, a, rap, a very large buggy whip industry, a wagon wheel industry, uh, you know, a very large horse industry, right? All of that went the way of the dodo bird as soon as uh, cars became prevalent. And all of a sudden you had mechanics and you had auto manufacturers, you had auto dealers, you had gas stations. I mean, all kinds of other industries opened up. Uh, and, and, you know, we can't bemoan the buggy whip business going away. We have to remember there's these other businesses that are cropping up. There's these other industries occurring that never happened before. Oh, and by the way, they're safer, they're cleaner, they're better paid, uh, and they're less boring. So it, it's a good thing. Um, you know, when, when our nation was first created, vast majority of us, 90-something percent of us, were farmers. It was back-breaking, murderous work. Well, now we only have 2% of us are, are farmers, right? But we feed the whole world. I mean, in, when, it first, when we first were created, we were starving, right? We were starving, uh, uh, you know, when, uh, when they dropped us off at the Mayflower. But now right. we literally feed the whole world with 2% of our people. So this is an example of a good thing, productivity improvements. You know, it, it makes food cheaper. It makes uh, us richer. I mean, there's many uh, farmers that are well off. And uh, it, it, it feeds the world. So these are good things. It's the same thing is true for manufacturing. The jobs are different, just like a farmer's life is different now. Um, and it's better to be a farmer now than it was 200 years ago. It's also better to be in manufacturing now than it was 50 years ago. Uh, and, I, and as I'm stressing, as you bring in more and more automation, we're going to bring more and more jobs back to America because all of a sudden we're much more competitive. And we could ship faster. You have to have less inventory sitting on the Pacific Ocean. You have less inventory waiting to go through a, a, a port uh, like the Los Angeles Harbor. You don't have any of that challenge. And you can make it here. So I think uh, long term, there will be American manufacturing renaissance. And, uh, you know, we might have it down here, here, and there, but the overall trend is it's going to get better. Uh, Drew, let me ask you. Uh, I see in uh, the bio that uh, you appeared before the U.S. Senate and Congress uh, uh, testifying uh, on many different topics. Uh, can you give us a little insight to uh, what that was all about and what came out of it? What, what benefit was there uh, that you saw coming out of your uh, testifying before uh, our favorite people in Washington? <laughs> sure. So, so. I uh, had the privilege of testifying in front of Congress, and it's uh, something that I think more manufacturers I wish could do because we have to tell them and give them a reality check because they're in their own little orbit in Washington. So we have to instruct them on what's going on in the real world and that we create $77,000 a year jobs out here in the real world. So uh, one of the things that I'm proud about, I contributed to uh, helping get along uh, the Section 179, which is a big deal for American manufacturers. Basically, we're allowed to depreciate uh, uh, equipment uh, right away so it's uh, financially more viable and uh, we can uh, bring on this automation right away so we can stay more competitive. That's something that happened over the last couple of weeks at the end of the last budget year. Uh, you know, 
Excuse me? Because they made it permanent now. It's, it's, it's wonderful. I mean, every year we would find out at the end of December whether or not we could use it. But obviously nobody, nobody could bring in a laser or a punch or a wire-forming machine with a week notice. So it was, it was a ridiculous, it was a ridiculous uh, paradigm set up by a bunch of people in Washington that are clueless. So that was changed. So I'm not going to say I, I had all to do with it, but I am saying I, I testified multiple times uh, on behalf of manufacturers to uh, uh, demand uh, making that permanent and making it uh, large. Um, other things I've testified on behalf of uh, is uh, reducing regulations. Right now, the average American manufacturing employee is burdened with over $25,000 per employee of regulations. So the employee doesn't per se see it, but that's the cost of hiring that talent because they have so much red tape coming out of Washington that um, we are uh, mired in it. And these are not rules that are helpful to anybody. It doesn't make anybody safer, make anybody more protected. But it's so much paperwork we have to put up with. Uh, it's really a drag on the economy. Uh, that's another thing that I testified on. Another thing was uh, improving the number of markets we could sell to. I mean, right now, we don't have uh, a clear path, a low tariff path to many countries. Right now, other countries really hammer us on tariffs. Well, because of that, we can't export to them. And because of that, uh, that hurts the number of American workers. So we need to open up more markets. And uh, getting, getting that passed through is another thing. So those are three things. Those are three examples of things I've testified on. Uh, helping out, you know, rational taxation. Uh, number two, regulations. Uh, and number three, the trade. Uh, improving, the, re reducing the trade barriers so that we could export more. But it's interesting because we've had Rethink Robotics on uh, Manufacturing Talk Radio, and their uh, two products are Baxter and Sawyer, and I think maybe we should run Baxter office and maybe elect a robot into conference and improve things. Gary, <laughs> what's uh, are, are we, as we look forward over the next five or ten years, through uh, uh, American Manufacturing Renaissance? Uh, are we looking at uh, a time where we're gaining strength right now, where we're becoming more talented? I didn't get the last word. Are we gaining? Are, are we gaining strength in manufacturing? Are we becoming more talented uh, as manufacturing moves forward in America? I think slowly. The if you look at the, the, the government figures on total. Manufacturing output, but it certainly isn't very dynamic. So, so mm -hmm. the you know it, it's decent. As I said before, it's, it's like in the manufacturing skilled workforce, it has stopped declining and, and is growing slowly, and that's better than continually declining. So, so I, I think the, the to me the biggest single uh, obstacle number one is skilled workforce. We have a horrible gap in the skilled workforce availability. First, typically the students are not, don't have as good a basic education as they should, like with discussing and numerical skills. And second, they don't have the specific technical skills, the welding, the tool making, the precision machining that we need. And in contrast that with Germany, Switzerland, that have these excellent apprenticeship programs, and the students get wonderful training and come out and make as much or more than a university graduate. 
And, and so here we've got this huge potential. We've got all this work we could bring back from offshore, but the students want to study philosophy and anthropology and sociology and, and have a $100,000 uh, college debt instead of going to an apprenticeship and being paid from day one and having no debt. You know, to me, to me it's, it's incomprehensible if the country can't get a better alignment of our, of our talent with our needs. And so, so to me, skilled workforce is, is, is the number one objective uh, to get things going faster. Uh, number two would be uh, taxes. Uh, I think Drew and I would agree that the corporate tax rate ought to be you know, 20 or 22 percent or somewhere instead of uh, uh, you know, 35 or whatever it is now, about the highest in the world. Uh, I'd like to see the dollar substantially lower. A huge trade deficit is an indication that your currency is, is continuously overvalued. There's a number of things like that that would that would make a huge difference in, in going from yeah we're doing a little better to we're doing great. And I'd like to see us doing great. I, I, I agree with the, uh, what Harry just said. I mean, take let, let's scroll and forward and focus in on taxes, for example. You know, here in America, we charge um, over 70% of our manufacturers. They, they pay what's called an L via LLC or Subass Corporation, uh, and they pay taxes of over 40-something percent uh, on their uh, on their income. And if you're in some states like New York and Maryland, uh, like my company, California, when you add in uh, things like uh, uh, the health insurance, right, it's over 50% of our uh, profit goes to taxes. Uh, in contrast to, for example, Canada, where they're paying 15% in their taxes. So when a Canadian company wins, uh, not only is their currency, their weak currency, uh, a positive factor, but the fact that they have to pay 15% taxes and we're paying 50% taxes, that's a real hindrance on the American uh, factory. So the real loser are the employees because, you know, we have to factor in those taxes in our prices. So when we factor that in, we lose more jobs. So what does that mean? We hire less people. So uh, this is very short-sighted. And, uh, you know, that, that would help accelerate with the manufacturers. We need, you know, major changes in regulations, in the tax code, in, in trade, for us to really ramp this up. I think long-term it's going to get better, but I, uh, we need some of these obstacles removed to really uh, get to hit the accelerator hard. As we started the show, I pointed out that in two debates in five hours, they mentioned the word manufacturing five times. They don't get it in Washington. Even though they do have certain programs, Manufacturing Day, which is not government program, it's a private enterprise, which I'm sure two of you are which is great. October 1st, every year they have this one program and it's a raging success. But it needs to be done daily, it needs to be done monthly, it needs to be promoted on an ongoing basis. These uh, isolated uh, uh, events are just not going to be enough to get enough people into the uh, manufacturing uh, sector as employees with talents and skills. So it all falls back onto Washington, and unfortunately, uh, they don't know what they're doing. 
point. Yes, sir, you bring up a very interesting point. You know, every new regulation causes some employees their jobs or costs some prospective employees their jobs because the, the employer has to implement the regulation or the rule or the policy and it takes, it takes money and it takes administrative overhead to do it. So you may see a small growth in administrative work, but you're not seeing any growth in productivity work. They're just cutting the legs out of manufacturing every time they can talk some new regulation. What was your sense when you testified on Capitol Hill about regulation? Are they listening? Because we're hearing that they're still piling on regulations left and right. Yeah, I agree with your assessment. Uh, the uh, current posture is to regulate more and not do a aggressive pairing back. I mean, what we need to do is sunset old rules that, that have no um, – that, that don't advance the cause. I mean, we need rules that are defined to uh, improving uh, safety for the worker or the, or the clean water, right? We don't need uh, extraneous rules that are um, ridiculous. Let me give you an example. So we, so we years ago, we had um, a situation where uh, OSHA uh, did an inspection on Marlin. This is many years ago. And, uh, there, you know, we have very, um, we have big, Press breaks, you know, 130-ton press breaks. We have crazy, uh, huge tools, uh, lasers and punches and all kinds of things, welders. And the OSHA fellow went around, and one of the things he did was he went into one of my salesman's uh, offices in, 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 in where he makes phone calls to prospects. And he saw that the fellow had a toaster oven. And it was not grounded properly, you know, because he likes to warm up toast uh, for lunch or whatever. And he, it wasn't, it was, so we got gig for this, and he took a scissor and cut the cord for the toaster oven so we wouldn't use it in that plug anymore. Literally cut the cord. Um, and, you know, we have this 137-ton press break out there, and, and nobody's focusing on things that might really hurt somebody, and we're focusing in on toaster ovens. It, it was a jaw-dropper. So, so this is, um, and you know, we got fined for it. There's a whole thing, right? So, my point to you is that we just got to focus in on what really moves the needle so that the employee is healthy. That's what we really care about, right? Uh, and uh, it's, it's this is the kind of thing that, you know, if, if um, America focused on regulations that really mattered, and we can cut rid of to get rid of the extraneous ones, uh, I tell you, you, you we're going to be hiring so many people, make your heads spin. <laughs> Meanwhile, we have 25,000 people working for the federal government. And if we wind up doing away with regulations and all the rest that they, they do administratively, we're going to wind up laying off people from the government because they won't have regulations and, and work to do. So I think some of this is similar to uh, China, where they built these cities and no people to move into them. And they have these little old Chinese ladies sweeping the streets and give them a job for, you know, two eight rolls a month. So yeah, but, but we, here, if, if we can get rid of the people that are doing the excess regulations, at least that will take, that will allow the productive portions of the economy to become more productive, which is what we're going to try to accomplish. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, that's going to be certainly the key to moving forward. That's going to be another show. I've always wanted to talk to some folks about uh, regulations and relations to manufacturing. Because Washington, D.C. 
point where it's, they, they don't understand that they're getting jobs out of manufacturing because the employer has to pay for them. It's got to be a, a way to implement it. If you're right, they, they should sunset a lot of stuff. So we'll talk to you about doing another show on that because that would be uh, very interesting. Gary, so in your sense of things, uh, you know, reassuring, um, which way are we having or pulling uh, as we look forward? Are we, uh, are, are we just kind of holding ground at the moment? Yeah. Uh, we we add together reshoring done by U.S. companies like Drew's company and foreign direct investment, investment in the U.S. by Toyota, Siemens, uh, BMW, foreign companies. But, but really the same phenomenon. And when you add the two together, the total is staying at the peak level that it achieved a year or two ago. The, the reshoring isn't not as much reshoring as it was a couple of years ago, more foreign direct investment. I don't care who owns the factory as long as Americans are working here making the products and, and we've got that, that value, that wealth being created in our country. So so, so the reshoring, that, that total uh, flow of jobs into the country is still strong and it's as strong as the flow out. So 10, 15 years ago, we were net losing about 140,000 manufacturing jobs to offshoring. So offshoring 140,000 more than we were reshoring, and now the two flows are about equal. So we we, we say the the bleeding has stopped, but the, but we still have three or four million manufacturing jobs offshore, and and my goal over the next 10 or 20 years is to bring them back. Uh, Harry, just in our last few moments of the show, I. I'd like to hear your comments uh, about the new shrine that is occurring in uh, Mexico. Uh, it's interesting. On the one hand, I read a lot about automotive and aerospace factories going into Mexico. On the other hand, total manufacturing uh, output in Mexico isn't rising very much. So there's some dichotomy there. But clearly, some of the work that comes out of Asia goes to Mexico. It's uh, and it looked like it was going to be even more. But then Alex Partners did a survey and came out and said, where two years ago American companies were preferring to bring it to Mexico instead of the U.S., now they're preferring to bring it to the U.S. instead of Mexico. So, so I think it's. It's good for Mexico to get some of the work. It brings up their standard of living, makes them a stronger partner with us. Uh, but we want to get at least our share, and, and, I, and I believe we're getting it. So well, that's good to hear because that uh, certainly near showing is something that's beginning to take off, and uh, I think it's running more smoothly than it did 20 years ago. I think the product quality is much higher than it was 20 years ago near showing. So. Fascinating to watch that phenomenon. Drew, I personally want to thank you for being on our show today. You're a fine guest, and we certainly appreciate you being here and sharing some on the ground stories, real life experiences with Marlon Steele. Well, it's my privilege to help out. Uh, like I said, we really want the American manufacturing renaissance. Uh, to happen fast, and uh, it's going to happen. It's, but I think shows like yours is going to is going to accelerate it. And I'm thrilled that you guys have this show, and we're very excited to collaborate with you in the future and really push this agenda. It's it's going to improve improve the number of middle class jobs in America, and it'll help us get us out of this recession. Thanks, Drew and Harry. Always a pleasure to have you on Manufacturing Talk Radio. We appreciate having you back. And Harry, a couple of more shows, you get a yellow jacket. 
<laughs> Actually, I've, I've got to buy a cardinal one. I'm having my 50th reunion at MIT, and you have to wear a cardinal jacket to walk in the parade. <laughs> well, gentlemen, thank you for being on Manufacturing Stock Radio. We'll be uh, back again next week to dive into manufacturing for a little more information. We're going to we're going to be talking uh, with uh, Norbert Moore. And for those of you who may not know Norbert, uh, Norbert is now at the company called Strategic Research Partners, but he preceded Brad Holcomb working with the ISM on the uh, he was the committee chair that generated the manufacturing report on this. So he's going to be talking to us from this new uh, gig, talking about the global business survey that he follows about eighteen of what's happening around the world in in the manufacturing and the so uh, we enjoy having uh, Norbert on the show, and we look forward to everyone listening next week. Pass on the word about Manufacturing Talk Radio, and thank you for listening. Thanks for joining us on Manufacturing Talk Radio. You can hear our next broadcast each Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time at msgtalkradio.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.